The 2023 Sundance Film Festival is in the books, and I have my thoughts on the movies I saw this year right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my thoughts on the slice of movies that I saw from the Sundance Film Festival this year. Last year was my first year covering the festival, and I think I saw 31 movies, and I was looking forward to seeing just as many this year, but I wasn't able to see as many. I think I saw a little more than half. I think it was 17 or 18 for a few different reasons. The biggest one is that the festival was not all virtual this year. The last two years, it's been a virtual film festival, which means that there were no in-person events. This year, they returned to an in-person festival, but they also kept a virtual component, and it was different in ways that I didn't anticipate. I knew, for example, that there would be a five-day gap. Basically, the film festival would start, and then five days later, you could start watching movies online, whereas last year, when it was all virtual, everybody could watch the movies at the same time. So I was anticipating that gap, that I'd have less time this year to watch movies than I did last year. Year. But what I didn't anticipate was the number of movies that would not be available at all for people who were watching online. Here's just a partial list of the movies that were not made available to watch online in any phase of the festival. Birth Rebirth, a very buzzy horror film about reanimation. Cassandro, a movie about a flamboyant luchador with a much talked about performance from Gael Garcia Bernal. Eileen, which generated a lot of buzz around Thomasin McKenzie's performance and also co-stars Anne Hathaway. Fairyland, a coming-of-age film set in 1970 San Francisco. Flora and Son, the latest film from Sing Street and once director John Carney, one of my favorite directors. In My Mother's Skin, a Filipino fairy tale. Infinity Pool, which premiered at Sundance ahead of hitting theaters this past weekend. Judy Bloom Forever, a documentary about the legendary children's author. Justice, the surprise documentary from director Doug Lyman about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. My Animal, a teenage take on the classic werewolf story starring Amanda Stenberg, Past Lives, a story about old friends reunited that many media outlets who are able to see it have picked as the best movie of the festival, Polite Society, a genre-smashing story of two sisters that already has an April release date and a trailer on YouTube with millions of views, Radical, the story of a middle school teacher, played by Eugenio Derbez. Still, a documentary about Michael J. Fox that will be premiering on Apple TV Plus later this year. The Deepest Breath, a documentary about free diving that's been compared to the Oscar-winning Free Solo. The Pod Generation, a social satire starring Emilia Clark and Chiwetel Ejiofor. And You Hurt My Feelings, the latest film from Nicole Hall of Center starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Had these films been made available and were the viewing window as long as it had been last year, I most likely would have seen most or all of these movies and I could tell you about them, what I thought, share my reviews, etc. But I wasn't even able to see any of these movies and because of the shortened viewing window, the decreased selection, and the fact that it was just a busy time of year, the Oscar nominations came out, lots of other stuff overlapped with that viewing window, I wasn't able to watch as many movies as I would have liked to this year. I am going to be pursuing press credentials next year as I mentioned, but it is kind of frustrating to see the virtual component of the film festival rolled back as much as it was. I mean, I guess I should be grateful that they kept a virtual component at all. I understand the need to make the festival exclusive for people to go to, but with that delay, that five-day delay before you could watch any movies online, I felt like that really kept that exclusivity that you had to be at Sundance to see the big splashy premieres and be the actual first people to see the movies. But by delaying the viewing window, 
and also holding back so many of the big titles from the festival, it did make it seem like that the virtual component was there almost as an obligation and that maybe we shouldn't even count on having it next year or that they decrease the number of movies even more next year. And I've generally found this industry-wide when we talk about the pandemic and coming out of the closures phase, the early phase of the pandemic, which is that when this all started and all the theaters were closed and you couldn't hold in-person events, it kind of put all critics on an equal footing for the first time in a while. And as somebody that relocated out of Los Angeles at that time, that was very helpful for me because I could still stay up with a lot of these different movies. But as events have started again and as theaters have opened, I found that there's been a big rollback to not offering the same virtual options for all critics and kind of going back to that center of, well, if you live in Los Angeles or New York, then you're the ones that only really matter and maybe we'll do other regional screenings around the country, but we're really going to stay centered in these two cities. And that's very frustrating, largely because a lot of critics did move out of those population centers during the pandemic. And also because, like I said, it put everybody on an equal footing. So I wish that Sundance had instituted that five-day waiting period for online films, but offered the full slate or given us the full duration of the festival to view movies online so that we could watch a lot more of the ones that were made available. Because there were still a lot of movies that were made available and a lot of good movies, which we're going to talk about. But I have noticed this, is that we're kind of rolling back to the old ways, and it does kind of seem like reestablishing that club, those boundaries, when a lot of those walls had been knocked down. I guess I should have anticipated that this would happen, but that doesn't make it any less disappointing. Having said that, there was still, as I said, a really good selection of movies to watch, and over six days, I watched 17 of them. Now, I know that a lot of people would say that those are rookie numbers. I saw people that were watching virtually that said that they'd watched 20, 25, 30, 35 movies over the six days, but I was kind of trying to pick and choose and go with quality over quantity to get movies from a lot of different areas of the festival. I did my research and looked at reviews that had come out and responses online from people that had seen it in Utah so that I could kind of curate my selections. And I think that I did a pretty good job. Actually, of the 17 movies that I watched, there was only really one that I didn't care for, which is a pretty good average. That's generally an average, though, with Sundance that you get because the movies are in the festival, which means that they usually have some sort of redeeming qualities. The only movie this year that I really did not care for and was easily my least favorite was a movie called Bad Behavior from director Alice Englert, which I found to be a meandering and ultimately dull story about a mother who's played by Jennifer Conley at a silent retreat in Oregon, and her daughter, who's played by Alice Englert, on set as a stunt coordinator in New Zealand. The stories do eventually intersect, but by the time we got to that point, which was way too late in the movie to actually start bringing this all together, I was so checked out. The pacing was all over the place. The tone was all over the place. There's been a discussion going on lately, and I usually, so far, I found it to be a pretty reductive discussion and very dismissive about the so-called Nepo babies, the people that get ahead because they are related to somebody who's already established in the industry. And it's not just in entertainment, it's in every single industry. And I've generally kind of turned away from that talk, but it's hard for me to look at this movie and look at the movie's director, Alice Englert, and not think that in some way her being Jane Campion's daughter didn't play into the decision to let the movie in the festival, because that's obviously automatically a point of interest and people are going to be drawn and curious about that. I don't know if this movie gets in if you don't have that point of interest. And that's not to discount her talent. She's not an untalented filmmaker, but I think that this was a very rough 
first movie. And I don't necessarily know if it was ready for primetime or ready for the spotlight of a big festival like Sundance. So I, I didn't hate the movie, but I, I certainly didn't enjoy it. And it really did stand out amongst movies that I at least found some higher highs in, even if I didn't like the overall movie. Also of interest is a documentary called Piano Forte, which is about the international Chopin competition held in Poland every five years. We're introduced to several unique competitors, but the inherent risk of documentary filmmaking is that sometimes the subjects you choose to follow don't pan out. Some in Piano Forte do, and some don't. Still, I think that it is a very noteworthy documentary, if only because it brought my attention to a competition that I didn't even know existed, and I would love to see a sequel to this one that takes place in five years, perhaps when they have a little bit more time to plan to follow more of the competitors for a longer period ahead of time, and maybe even expand the net so that they have a better chance of catching the people that actually have a big role to play in the end game of this contest. Run Rabbit Run was one of the high profile acquisitions ahead of Sundance right before the festival started. It was bought by Netflix to premiere later this year. The movie's directed by Dana Reed and stars Succession's Sarah Snook, say that five times fast, and it is a spooky family horror story set in Australia with shades of hereditary. The movie polarized critics and audiences, but I found it to be worthwhile even if the payoff certainly is not worth the lengthy setup that precedes it. I like the style, I like the tone, there's some genuinely creepy moments, they just really couldn't nail the end there, but if you're one of those horror people that likes the atmosphere, I guess what people call elevated horror now, I think there's a lot there for you. If you're in it for the jumps and the scares and everything else, maybe this isn't the one for you. Jamo Jaya from veteran Sundance director Justin Chan was another movie that I liked pieces of more than I liked the whole. It tells the story of an Indonesian rapper played by Rich Brian who struggles to find his path as a mainstream artist on a new label while also trying to detach himself from his father who's been acting as his manager. After a promising setup, the movie gets stuck in the same beats for a while until a rushed and unsatisfying ending that doesn't really seem to pay off what the rest of the movie has been established. So I would say it is a movie that is full of good performances with a bit of a sloppy narrative. Trans representation was very strong at Sundance this year, and there were a couple of movies that I watched that shed a light on the trans experience in two very different ways. Kokomo City is a starkly shot but emotionally rich documentary about trans sex workers focusing mostly on anecdotes from their lives. It's a fascinating subject matter, but I feel it might have been an A-plus 45-minute documentary short instead of a full-length doc. Still, it is a glimpse into a life that few have ever seen and that many in society often shy away from completely. Also shining light on the trans experience was Vuk Lungalov Klotz's debut film Mutt, starring Leo Mahil. The movie follows Fania, a trans man who's still fighting for acceptance as he continues his own personal journey. Over the course of a day, we meet Fania's sister, we meet Fania's ex-boyfriend, Fania's father, and it's really interesting to see that each of these characters is at a different point of acceptance for Fania living out as a trans man, which he had not been doing previously. The relationship between Fania and his father is what really anchors the third act of the movie and provides a lot of the heart. And this is Roger Ebert's empathy machine. This movie is because it so vividly shows the experience of this character and the struggles that he has every day and the things that he is still trying to adjust to and accept about himself, the changes that are still going on. I really think that this movie is something that could be useful 
for people to whom the trans experience is completely alien because it is so compassionate and so straightforward. And it really is just about this person. It doesn't really seem to have any kind of agenda. It's not pushing a message. It's just showing you this character and this person's struggle and what they go through from day to day. One of many directors making their directorial debut at Sundance was Randall Park, who you've seen on screen and Always Be My Baby, Fresh Off the Boat, Aquaman, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and so many more. I am a little biased, to be fair, because Randall is an old Channel 101 compatriot from many, many years before, so I was very happy to see that he had a movie that got into Sundance. The movie's called Shortcomings, and it is a grounded look at a truly unlikable character, but unlikable by design, and it really felt to me like a throwback to the Sundance films of the 90s, which basically required a group of characters, a camera, and a script featuring these relatable characters talking about their lives. Shortcomings is about a misanthropic movie theater manager who re-examines his life only after his long-term girlfriend decides that she wants a little bit of distance from their relationship, and you see him navigating his own feelings and his feelings about other people. And like I said, he is generally an unlikable character, but this movie is able to succeed with an unlikable character in the lead in ways that movies like Jesse Eisenberg's film from last year, When You're Finished Saving the World, were not able to do. I actually enjoyed the film, and you do root for some growth in this character because it's a fine line, and they walk that fine line really nicely in the movie. Shortcomings is a lot of fun, and in the Q&A that was included after uh, the premiere online, you could see that it was a very meaningful experience for Randall and for his cast, and for seeing this story starring this cast, and I'm really excited to see what Randall has up his sleeve next because I think this is a really solid debut. Before we continue, I want to thank the sponsor for this video, Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. We are well into January, which means it is time to buckle down and really think about making better choices. And AG1 is an easy and delicious choice when it comes to giving your body what it needs. So what is AG1? Well, with one delicious scoop, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, and more to help you start your day right. And it is super simple. I can either put a scoop right into a cup of water, or if I'm feeling adventurous, mix it into a shake for breakfast at home. Either way, it's a quick and tasty way for me to start the day off right and make sure that I'm supporting not only my gut health, but my immune system, my recovery, focus, and so much more. If you don't take a multivitamin or you've been trying to figure out which one to take, AG1 is a great choice because it's full of high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Dan. Again, that's athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I want to thank AG1 by Athletic Greens for sponsoring today's show. The documentary Little Richard, I Am Everything, already has distribution and is set to be released in the spring. I knew Little Richard's music, I knew his larger-than-life personality, but I had no idea what his story really was or some of his struggles as a sometimes-out gay man at a time when that was not accepted in many circles privately or professionally. I also underestimated his seismic impact in the course of music in the latter half of the 20th century. And for anybody that wants to know more about him as an artist, as a person, this really is a fascinating documentary, a deep dive into his influence, and really highly recommended. 
The winner of the Sundance Audience Award in the dramatic competition was the Persian version. It's a multi-generational story about an Iranian family living in America as immigrants told through the eyes of a young woman, her mother, and her grandmother. The Persian version is at its best when it's focused on Nayusha Noor's Shireen, who reinvents herself to provide for her family, including her daughter Layla, played by Layla Mohammadi, estranged from her mother due to being in a gay marriage. What the Persian version sometimes lacks in focus, it definitely makes up for in heart and a viewpoint that we have not often seen on screen. And given the fact that it did win the audience award in the dramatic category, I think it's also a crowd pleaser that should get distribution later this year. The winner of Sundance's Grand Jury Prize in the dramatic competition, which is basically the Sundance equivalent of Best Picture, was A.V. Rockwell's feature debut, 1001, which stars Tiana Taylor as Inez, a young woman who's released from Rikers and illegally takes her son Terry out of the foster care system to raise him herself. Beginning in 1993, we see New York change for what many continue to call the better as the city becomes harder and harder to survive in for Inez and her family. While Taylor has won many accolades for her lead performance, the real discovery in this movie for me was Josiah Cross, who plays the older teenage version of Inez's son, Terry. I think the reason that the movie won the Grand Jury Prize is because of his performance in this third act, particularly towards the end. And I'm going to be so interested to see where he goes going forward because he could be someone to look out for. I don't really see 1001 replicating the award success of more recent winners of the award, including Minari and Coda, which won Best Picture last year. But I do think the Grand Jury Prize win is going to help 1001 get distribution and ultimately help it get in front of more people, which given the talent involved and the story, I think is a good thing. So all the movies I talked about mostly were really enjoyable, but these last six were really what I would call my highlights of Sundance this year. First up, we have a movie called Sometimes I Think About Dying from director Rachel Lambert. It was the first film that I watched online this year and one of the best. Daisy Ridley gives a restrained and nuanced performance as Fran, a chronically shy and lonely office drone who explores a relationship with co-worker Robert, played by comedian Dave Merhej. I don't think that Fran even speaks until a half hour into the movie, literally. But by that time, just through Daisy Ridley's performance, you know everything you need to know about her as a person. You see her grow, regress, learn, then make bigger mistakes and have setbacks. The whole movie kind of operates on this thesis, which is spoken by one of the other characters in the film, that it's hard, isn't it, being a person? And, and it kind of goes on from there. It's about the difficulties that we face every day, whether you have the same struggles that Fran has or whether you don't have them. It's a small film, it's a quiet film, but it is a movie that flew by for me as I was watching it. And Ridley's performance in particular is one of my favorite performances early in the year, and I think is still gonna be one of my favorite performances when we get to the end of 2023. Fair Play was the biggest acquisition as of now at Sundance, selling to Netflix for around $20 million. Chloe DeMont is a veteran TV director making her feature debut in a story of ambition, power, love, and jealousy. Alden Ehrenreich plays Luke, a financial analyst whose secret relationship with co-worker and fiance Emily, played by Phoebe Dynevor, gets complicated after she's given a promotion that he was told would go to him. The remainder of the film is just a pressure cooker that feels like it is going to blow up at any second. And when it finally does, it is a spectacular explosion in 
all the worst ways. There are two great lead performances from Alden Ehrenreich and Phoebe Dynavor, and a great supporting performance from character actor Eddie Marsan. He is a truly terrifying bastard in this movie. One movie that could have been unbearable is Theater Camp from first-time feature directors Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman with a script from the directors and also actors Noah Galvin and Ben Platt. It's a movie about Theater Camp made by Theater Camp kids which could have spiraled into end jokes and terminal short-sightedness. Instead, it becomes an ode to outsiders of all types and the places where they go to fit in and find their people. And I was once one of those people. I, I didn't quite fit in anywhere, and then I found my group, and you just click that way. And that's really what this movie is about. Yes, there are theater camp jokes and drama jokes, etc. And I know that theater camp kids could sometimes be a little much, but this movie largely stays away from that. Noah Galvin in particular is a standout in this movie. You probably remember him from Booksmart. He had a really memorable role in that film. Ben Platt's in the movie. There are other familiar faces and names that pop up, and it's a good solid comedy for the first two acts, and then a third act that's really good with some original music and an original performance. Is it a little cheap to have a big finale with a group of kids singing at a theater camp and music and all that? Yeah, sure it is, but it was also really enjoyable, and of all of the movies that I watched this year, Theater Camp was one of the bright spots, because let's be honest, a lot of these movies can kind of be downers, but also one that I'm going to remember and that I think is going to be something that a lot of other people enjoy once it gets out there into the world. Dragging the mood the opposite way, as I mentioned, some of these are pretty dark, but by necessity is a powerful documentary called 20 Days in Mariupol from documentarian and journalist Mstislav Chernov. At times, Chernov and his colleagues were the only journalists on the ground inside Mariupol, Ukraine, as Russia's forces began advancing early last year. 20 Days in Mariupol captures the abject horrors of war, images that were beamed across the world, but still feel raw as we see them uncut and as they happen. And we also see the fact that these images are denounced in Russia as fake news. And Chernoff and his crew are many times risking their lives to stay in Mariupol, to not evacuate, to get further away from Russian troops because they know that if they're not there to document what's happening, then the truth will never, ever be heard and will never be seen and will never be acknowledged. It is a testament to the importance of journalism, to the importance of being there and witnessing things, even if it is so hard to watch. 20 Days in Mariupol was an unforgettable experience for me this year. It was one that I had to take a breath, had to take a walk around the block afterwards. It's hard to let go of this film, but as important things in this world sometimes are, you have to be prepared for the difficulty to understand the importance. The Grand Jury Prize in World Cinema went to a little movie called Scrapper, the feature debut of writer-director Charlotte Regan. Lola Campbell, making her film debut, plays Georgie, a young girl who loses her mother and decides to live without parental supervision by conning social services. When Georgie's absentee father, played by Harris Dickinson, resurfaces, the two have to outwit each other while also getting to know one another and building a bond united by the absence of Georgie's mom. The word cute, I think, is often used as a dismissive term when it comes to describing films, but this is a really cute and charming movie, and I loved these two characters. I loved watching their bond and their relationship develop, and it was another one that kind of flew by, even though this isn't a big movie with lots of characters and lots going on. You're really engaged with what's going on on screen. It's charming, it's a small and very genuine story that thoroughly won me over. 
Finally, the most unforgettable film that I saw at the festival, maybe not my favorite or the best movie, but certainly the best performance by far, is a movie called Magazine Dreams, which you may have already heard about. We already knew that 2023 was going to be a breakout year for Jonathan Majors. He's got a big role in Creed 3 coming up. He's making his theatrical debut as Kang in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania here in about a month. But Magazine Dreams may turn Jonathan Majors' breakout year into an absolute explosion. If you've been watching Jonathan Majors, you know that he's got it, but his performance in Magazine Dreams takes it to another level. It is transcendent, both touching and bone chilling, as he plays aspiring bodybuilder Killian Maddox, who struggles to be seen and heard in a world that shows him nothing but indifference and ridicule. As a movie, I think that Magazine Dreams is pretty messy, especially as you get to the third act. It seems like they're trying about six different endings to see which one is going to fit. But Jonathan Majors, every second that he's on screen, it is transfixing. It is one of the best screen performances that I've seen in a very long time, and it makes this movie an absolute must-watch. John Boyega turned in an absolutely fantastic performance, I thought, last year at Sundance in a movie called Breaking, and my hope was that awards voters would remember it. At the end of the year, they didn't. The performance in the movie were basically ignored. I don't know if Jonathan Major's performance in this movie is going to be able to be ignored, even almost a year from now, as we're talking about awards time, this performance is that good. It is chilling sometimes, the depth that he goes to capture this character and the transformation he put his own body through to be this character. If you still had any doubt whatsoever that Jonathan Majors was, first of all, one of the best actors working today, and second of all, that he is destined for, I believe, superstardom, then watch this movie, and I don't think you're going to have any doubts about that anymore. Because for me, Magazine Dreams was the standout of the festival, at least that I was able to watch and that I got a chance to watch, on his performance alone. So those are my thoughts on the movies I saw at the Sundance Film Festival. Did you watch even more of them online? Did you see some that I didn't catch that you want to recommend? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, thank you so much for watching. I'll be back very soon with more movie news, reviews, box office, and more. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.